My guest today on the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast is Bruce Teal. Bruce is a therapist from upstate New York, a licensed social worker who incorporates NLP skills into his traditional therapy practice. He's also the former clinical director of the Research and Recognition Project, a project that used NLP skills to incredibly speed up the recovery of veterans from PTSD. You want to hear this. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. All right. Well, I am here today with Bruce Teal, who is a New York State licensed clinical social worker, former director of the Research and Recognition Project, which I was also part of at one point, and I am thrilled to have him here. Bruce not only does a lot of work with clients in his social work practice, but he uses NLP a lot in it. So I'm really Curious. I want to find out how specifically he merges these two fields. So, Bruce, without any further ado, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Doug. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited and a little daunted by the level of the guests you've had before me. So, I hope this isn't a horrifying disappointment for all those involved. <laughs> well, I'd stop short of horrifying disappointment. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you're you're right up there, my friend. So I'm really, really pleased to have you here. So, you know, a lot of people who listen to this broadcast are people who are interested in becoming coaches, um, people who have perhaps just started being coaches and want to, you know, take their practice to the next level, whatever that means for them particularly, whether it's becoming a better actual coach or therapist or being, you know, more successful in that so that they can make a living doing that. You do both those things. You know, that's why I wanted to have you on this because you are well trained in both NLP and, of course, other forms of you know, people helping. Um, yeah. You're a licensed clin- clinical social worker and you've got a thriving practice. You know, you work more than anybody I know, <laughs> which is saying I am greedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you've got a, a wicked sense of humor, too. Well, I <laughs> so, do what I can, Doug. And I also yeah, I, enjoyed a really great uh, TED Talk. I thought that you, I thought it was a really great TED Talk that you did on how NLP does that, how you can change like phobias and traumas using NLP. And that was part of the Research Recognition Project's goal is to show how NLP really does work for traumas. So absolutely. why don't we start there? Why don't we start with that okay. Research and Recognition Project, what that was all about and how you were part of that as the clinical director? Sure. Um, so the Research and Recognition Project originally actually was the NLP Research and Recognition Project. Um, I think just for clarity, they shortened the name a little bit. And they had been around for a little while, and then they started um, to focus on the PTSD slash phobia treatment developed back in the early 80s in NLP. and um, this gentleman, uh, Dr. Frank Burke from Corning, New York, kind of jumped on board and, and gave it a lot more energy than it had. And he was particularly interested in the trauma piece. He was one of the psychologists who had gone down to New York after 9-11 and just to help out. And after being down there and, and doing the NLP process with hundreds of people, he also noticed that there were a lot of really well-meaning psychologists, social workers, you know, other disciplines down there that wanted to help but didn't really have any specific tools for that. So that became his mission was to to get the word out on NLP and the trauma treatment, what they have since called the Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories or RTM process which also has been known as the movie theater process, the fast phobia cure, 
visual slash kinesthetic association. It, it, it had a lot of different names. So that's all the same process with different names. Exactly. I mean, there's a few variations, but overall it's the same, same okay. thing. So um, actually I had gotten a letter from the research and recognition project because I had, uh, I, I guess it was through email. I was on their email list asking for uh, professionals that use the process regularly to just kind of give them a letter of, of uh, uh confirmation that they used it right kind of a little to give them a little gravitas when they were looking for grants and so forth so i put together a quick letter and sent it down to frank and the next thing i know i've got a phone call from frank burke saying hey we should get together so corning and rochester where i'm from are not very far away so we got together for lunch and talked about it and at that point in time i i was a clinical director of a of noise mental health services south of rochester I had been for quite a few years. I, I had left that position and just did private practice. But I had an unusual triad of things that were helpful. I was a licensed mental health practitioner. I had experience with NLP and I had been an administrator. So I started working with Frank uh, shortly thereafter. First on our pilot project was uh, a grant from New York State for 25 veterans. In the end, we saw 26, and 25 of the 26, after three to six sessions, no longer met criteria for PTSD, which is not surprising to you or I, or probably a lot of people listening to this, but in the general realm of healthcare, it's a pretty phenomenal thing. I think that's a 97% success rate. So could you just stop there for a second, and just for those of us who don't know what that means, Tell us what that means, that they no longer met okay. the criteria for PTSD. Okay, so if you get the big book of mental health stuff, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, the DSM, how you do a diagnosis in mental health is there is what they call criteria, which are basically descriptions. Uh-huh. So if you look up PTSD, they'll say, okay, as long as you meet five out of seven, I'm making these numbers up, and that, you know, off the top of my head, I don't want to. So one of them, you have to have, for instance, exposure to a life-threatening situation that's either, you know, super dangerous to you or you're observing somebody else in that situation. Mm -hmm. If that hasn't happened, it's not PTSD, it's something else, right? So that's the first criteria. Then there's a bunch of symptoms ones, nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive memories, uh, change in mood a whole series of different criteria that once you have all those things, we can officially say you have PTSD. Okay, cool. So we we can debate whether that makes sense or not for years, but that's kind of how it is. But as far as the diagnostic tool is concerned, that's, that's how that works. So what this is saying is before we did treatment, they met enough of those criteria that they qualified for a PTSD diagnosis Mm -hmm. after three to six sessions. They no longer had those active symptoms, so they didn't meet criteria. You couldn't say they had PTSD. Okay. Generally, we don't like to say cure in mental health because it's a fluid thing. But but certainly at that point, and I think they did a six-month follow-up, um, still I think maybe one or two weren't in, in as good a spot, but the vast majority of people no longer met criteria after a six-month follow-up. That's phenomenal. And when, you know, what really is impressive about that is if you compare those results to what most veterans were getting at the VA hospital up to that point, it was a night and day comparison. Like the the Land Corporation study. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. You can go ahead. I was going to say, you you showed me about this Rand Corporation study where they they had, you know, um, 30% after, after extensive treatment, 30% you know, didn't meet criteria anymore, but they had a huge dropout rate as well. Like if more people dropped out of those studies than stayed in it. So it was really kind of a skewed result, but you guys, nobody dropped out. And it was like 95% success rate is extraordinary. It is a very different situation. And really because of the NLP underpinnings of all of that process that was developed, it's, 
it has a lot of benefits. It's very effective. It's very comfortable when you do it compared to say exposure therapies for PTSD where mm, you have to, yeah. you know, it's very uncomfortable. Sure. They work, but if we've got something better, you know, once you learn to drive a car, you don't ride your bike a lot. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Especially if you're a number of miles away. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it, it was a very good proof of concept study, which led to a second study of um, a, a higher grant, again, from New York State. This one, we had 75 participants and, again, had an over 90% success rate. There's also been multiple replications out of the San Diego office, again, always over 90%. So it's very consistently nine out of 10 of the people involved in the study within a short period of time. Now, usually we just do three sessions or less. People no longer met criteria for PTSD. And I say it that way specifically because it doesn't mean their life is perfect. You know, there, if, if you have a lifelong history of trauma, for instance, I work with a lot of people in my private practice that aren't um, veterans, but had child sexual trauma or physical abuse or whatever, get the same kind of results as far as the traumatic memories. But that's impacted their life in a lot of ways, that there continues to be other work. Gotcha. So you're talking about your own private practice now, not the study itself. Right. Yeah. So tell me about that. So how, how do you use, let's say, non-traditional therapy methods in your traditional therapy? Um, in other words, how do you incorporate NLP and in some of the things that we've been talking about, like the, the RTM protocols, et cetera, into your therapy practice? Um, it's interesting because I actually was involved in NLP before I went to school for, for social work. Mm-hmm. So my frame of reference is more NLP oriented in some ways than even traditional, you know, as opposed to say being trained as a psychologist or a social worker and then adding on these skills. I come at it pretty much from a Ericksonian or an NLP perspective where it's very much about resources and being clear about outcomes and so forth. Um, I still use a lot of traditional NLP, or I mean, mental health tools. I'm always listening and, you know, I use different things from other parts of therapy, cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of those. Mm -hmm. But I would say that in two ways, my kind of frame and reference of reference and ongoing methodology is, is very much similar to an NLP practice would be. And I also use a lot of the specific tools. So I'll use, you know, swish patterns and uh, core transformation and, you know, reframing is just something that we all kind of do all the time anyway. I mean, that's not, sure. you know, I that's may occasionally use six step reframing or change so personal history. You so you actually will do a swish pattern in a, in a therapy session. That's a. Absolutely. Really? In fact, the one I, I tend to use more is auditory switch. Tell me about that. Because so the visual switch, the standard switch, is where is you know you switch from a cue image that is an associated image, and then by submodality changes you go to a self image that's also a visual representation of the you for whom this isn't a problem. Okay. You just switch all of that to the auditory channel. So the initial trigger is a sound, or frequently, the reason I use it a lot is voice tone. So as an and example, voice tone, if my wife talks to me in a certain tonality, then I, then I get triggered. How exactly. dare she talk to me like that? Absolutely. And vice versa, if you had a tone with your wife, we could use it with her. I don't use a so. tone. <laughs> <laughs> I have no tone to my voice. What are you talking about, Bruce? And then what you do is the the self-esteem, the self-image part is then instead of a picture of themselves, it would be them hearing what their voice would sound like if they were this person that no longer had a problem. So the same person's voice, but with a different tonality? 
No, your voice. My voice. With the tonality you would have if your wife's tone didn't bother you anymore. Oh, I see. Gotcha. So, so in the same way, think of it in visual terms. If you're looking at yourself and you tell, can tell by looking at them that this isn't a problem for them anymore, the way they stand, the look on their face, whatever. In the same way, it's and if people are very visual, I'll do an overlap and I'll have them say, okay, see yourself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then imagine they're talking. What does that sound like? What's their tonality? Gotcha. That's so great. then you switch from one to the other. So ultimately, the uh, the effect is that next time my wife uses a tone like that, or I perceive it that way. Let's put it that way, right. in case she's listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, then I would switch my response. My response right. switches to being seeing myself or hearing myself. In this case, since it's auditory, um, right. with yeah, a tonality but... saying something like, "Hey, it's oh, it's, she's just a little stressed," or right, and and the the subjective experience of it for the person after you've successfully done an auditory switch is mm-hmm. frequently they don't even notice anything happens. Uh-huh. What happens, you know, and this happens a lot when you do NLP regularly with people in the kind of context I do where it's not just once and see and that's it. I see them, you know, whatever I need to see them. Uh, but they'll come back in a week, two weeks later, I'll say, yeah, I'll give you. So I had a guy that that uh, had a really rough relationship with his father. Didn't like to visit him because his father was always critical of him. I said, "Okay, can you hear the voice? Yeah. Does that make you feel that unresourceful in the way that you do when this happens? Yeah. We do this swish. Come back two weeks later. I said, "Hey, did you see your dad? Yeah. How'd it go? Fine. Why? It's like they just there's not that's like nothing happened therapeutically, but they have a totally different response. Yeah. Yeah. So." One of the it's one of those times where you know you did good work because it's kind of invisible. Do you bring it to their attention, or just like let it be at that point? That really depends on the the um, circumstances. A lot of times, to be honest, I just let it be because that's kind of a test of the work. Right. Um, I may again, if I'm seeing that person over time, and that was a really big deal, um, then I will check it again later. But if it's a piece of work that I think that they would benefit from some insight as a client, mm-hmm. if that fits for the case, well, then be proud. Interesting. That's very cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So let me ask you this. This this podcast is called the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. So I always like to ask my my guests, you know, if there were, in your mind, you know, an essential skill, like if there were one, essential coaching skill that you could put your finger on? Would it be the swish pattern? Would it be uh, cognitive behavioral therapy? I mean, if there was one essential coaching skill that you could put your finger on or or two, if you want, span mm-hmm. out, you could go as far as three, I suppose. We're having a sale today. But if there were one, what would it be? You know, I think that that is a really good question. And since I've listened to your podcast, I knew you would ask so what that got me thinking about was the difference between a skill and a technique. Okay. Because I don't think it's about, when you say essential skills, that's a different category to me than an essential technique. Great. That's really great. Thank you. Tell me, tell me more. And I think that there are a lot of skills within NLP that, that are important. And I think that, the the pieces that you're doing on an ongoing basis kind of all the time in to varying degrees would be skills so things like uh you know rapport and calibration and an awareness of representational systems even the language model you know meta model milton model um you know, okay, well, I said you could have three. Now that's four and actually five. Okay. So well, so no, wait, let me back. So no, I was trying to give an example <laughs> of skills rather than techniques. Yeah. Yeah. So I would think the, the core piece to me is, and I think this is true anytime two people are working together or interacting is, and it's a few things bundled together, but it's the ability to have calibration skills. So you have a sense of what is going on for that person. 
Mm -hmm. right? And being able to have an outcome in mind and the flexibility to keep going until you get to the outcome you want. Okay, great. So let me just stop you there. So I'm just jotting this down. I totally get what you're saying, and I'm going to need you to explain it. Uh, just in no case problem. I don't understand it, or somebody who's listening doesn't understand. Well, so, so calibration so, skills. Let's start there. What did, what right. is it? So calibration skills is a is really NLP lingo for sure. But basically, the, to make it even more kind of horribly linguistified, yeah, is a beamer, right? A behavioral manifestation of an internal response. Remember that one? Oh, no, I forgot that one. Behavioral manifestation. Manifestation of an internal response. So basically. Where's that from? That's an NLP thing from like long, long, long ago. No way. Seriously? I don't know that one. Behavioral. Say it again. Behavioral manifestation of an internal response. Gosh. Okay. So basically what it's saying is when you go into a certain state, your behavior is going to indicate you're in that state. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's interesting. My 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 partner Kevin Creedon and I used to do a class um in NLP sort NLP certification course where we called it the long car ride. It was an exercise we did. It was called the long car ride. And so the way it started, this particular exercise is we would have a you know, a volunteer come up to the front of the room and um think about two different people, one person that they liked to be with and one person that they didn't like to be with mm-hmm. necessarily. Um and so that if they were on a long car ride with, you know, person A, they'd be like, oh, all right, this is great. We're just hanging out and having a good time while we're driving across the country. You know, that'd be a long car ride. Um, the second person would be like, oh, no, I've got to be in a car with this person. <laughs> right. And so we get them to have those two different people represented in their minds. And then we'd notice, we calibrate, you know, their physiology. How did they hold their face? How, right. What kind of tension did you notice in their shoulders? You know, what did you... How did it affect their breathing and their posture and all these different things where we would calibrate from person A to person B. And then once we did the a fairly good calibration, we'd say, okay, now just shake yourself out and be in neutral place. But imagine now that you're going for a long car ride. And of these two people, the person who is taller gets into the car with you. And then, you know, we wouldn't say anything beyond that. And the person wouldn't say a word, but we would just watch the person. And notice if they, you know, tightened up their shoulders a little bit or whatever. And just to notice from our calibration skills, who just got into the car, person A or person B. So that's one way we would practice. That's a really beautiful example and description of it. So calibration is identifying what the sensory elements are to each of those states whether they're with the person they like or the person they don't like. So you're doing it all visually, but that would also be true of voice tone. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, you're in working in the visual channel, but they're showing it through their kinesthetics. So the ability to kind of spot. In other words, let me just stop you there. In other words, we're seeing them, but they are manifesting in in their body. So they're kinesthetic. So they're, they're moving their body in a certain way that we can see from across the room. Exactly. So what you ideally do at some point in your interaction with somebody is to ask them what the problem is. They will not only tell you about it, they will demonstrate it in their body posture and their tonality and all sorts of other ways that are behavioral. Mm-hmm. So that's a beamer. Okay. 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 Good. A behavioral manifestation of an internal response. And then when you ask them about what the desired state is, their goal, where they want to get to, they're also going to demonstrate the state that they want to be in. Oh, nice. As you ask them about it, as you elicit that, what's that going to be like? Questions like that. So now, as you're trying different things, whether it's a simple conversation or giving somebody advice, or some elaborate intervention, in the end, when you offer them the opportunity to respond to the original context, you you know, future pacing would be a way to say it, right? What you want to see is that they automatically 
show the desired state. Yeah, that's so great. That is, this is Bruce, why I wanted you on this show. <laughs> no, seriously, because you have a way of, 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 of getting to the crux of the matter. I mean, for me, that's the crux of the matter. You know, it's, right. when people talk about stuff, they can, they can be lying to themselves. They can be fooling themselves, but it, the body doesn't lie. So if you if you're watching you know if you're watching them and calibrating appropriately, you see that oh they're shrugging their shoulders like that or their faces screwed up like that or whatever. And then later on, you if you want to test your work and see if they've gotten any change, go like yeah, I'm feeling much better. And they're shrugging their shoulders and screwing up their face. It's like they're not feeling much better. So you got more work to do. Right. I mean, I uh, let's see. How can I do this without? getting sued so i was listening to a podcast <laughs> always a good question to ask <laughs> right no, it's always right there let me check with my attorney um so i was listening to a podcast by a very very well known within the the realm of uh psychology um a phd psychologist who's written many books very top of the line guy and he was having an after interview like a week or two weeks later with somebody that he had claimed to have resolved PTSD with and did a follow-up a few weeks later, right? And as I'm listening to it, I can hear in the guy's voice that he's becoming completely overwhelmed just talking about the treatment related to it. Now, I'm not saying he didn't benefit, mm-hmm. right? I think he did. He talked about ways that he had benefited. But at the core level, the piece that the the movie theater technique, RTM, is really good at, did not get taken care of. Right. The beautiful thing about that kind of work, or, you know, you do havening, similar kind of intervention in a way, mm-hmm. as far as how the change occurs, in my opinion. It Those kinds of things, when they work, you know it, because you try to trigger the person and they won't. Right. The person, not a conscious the process. And then nothing happens. That's right. It's like yeah. you can't keep people from pushing your button, but you can unhook the wire. Exactly. That should be a bumper sticker. Say it again. You, you can't, what'd you say? <laughs> you can't stop people from pushing your button, but you can unhook the wire. Did you say the people before, first time? I uh, can't stop people, maybe. Yeah. I thought, I thought you said the fool. I thought you can't stop the fool from pushing the button. But no, I, could I like that better. We'll go with that one. <laughs> but you can't unhook you the can't wire. stop the fool from pushing the button, but you can unhook the wire. I like it. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, exactly. And again. Okay. So to get, so circle back real quick. So that calibration, flexibility, knowing where you're going, kind of triad. Right. If you think about it in another context, teaching. For me, people that are good teachers do this, you know, without even knowing it. But basically, they tr- they teach you something, and if the the little light in your eyes doesn't go on, you know, if they can't see an outward manifestation of the aha, mm-hmm. then they change their tack and they teach you in a different way. They use a metaphor instead of writing it out on the board. Or what? Really good teachers know how to teach the same content multiple ways yeah. and they just keep going until blink and then they move on yeah exactly no that's, that's bad teachers just have one way yeah bad teachers just kind of read the material and say okay i've done my job time to go home see you next week um yeah i got that you know it's interesting my my one of my teachers um dave dobson used to call that the nickel drop experience um hmm. it was showing his age for sure but you know i knew what he meant which showed my age for sure because because right. <laughs> in the old days long time ago uh, um you put money in a payphone i thought you were talking about a nickel where, bag what's that i thought you were talking about a nickel bag oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well that's not just showing your age it's showing a yeah, right? culture <laughs> lifestyle um <laughs> Nickel bags around here, but um, yeah, anyway, right. so um, yeah, what was I saying? Yeah, so <laughs> in the old days, in my my old days, you put a dime in a payphone, but some some phones were designed, and I guess Dave's were um, designed so that you you'd pick up the the receiver, you'd get the dial tone, you'd, you'd dial the number, 
And then when the person answered, there'd be no real connection. They'd be going, hello, hello, hello. But it wasn't, then you would put the dime in. And then when the dime dropped down, then get like, hey, Bob, how you doing? And there'd be a connection. You know, you actually got through. So Dave called that the nickel drop. So when a person, when you're telling it, when you're teaching a concept in a class and the person just looking at you like a deer in the headlights, you know, they're not done yet. They ain't got it. You don't got that connection. But if you explain it a different way or do a metaphor or just say it again, and then they go, oh, right, 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 I got it. You get that full body nod, you know, where they're saying yes and their body's nodding, their head's nodding. Um, then you know you got it. You got the nickel drop. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's a huge part of how so many things work, but especially, you know, any kind of coaching, treatment, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is also really true that, um, you know, it's traditional therapy. I mean, if you think back to Freud, et cetera, um, Freud would be sitting to the side of the person, maybe facing away from the person while the person right. was lying back on the sofa and recounting their, their dreams or whatever. And um, Freud wouldn't often wouldn't even be looking at this reading, you know, writing in his notebook or whatever right well that that was the tabula rasa thing the idea that you were you didn't want to interject yourself on the client at all sure i understand and and that was the thing i used to get into arguments in grad school about all the time that it'd be like you can't influence your your client and i'd be like you can't not influence them yeah. that's not you gotta own it there you go that's, that's the key you, you gotta you, you gotta use it ethically if you if you don't own it you know it's like having a gun with no sights on wow very cool you're full of good metaphors yeah that's <laughs> that's that's really true in nlp we've often said you know you cannot not communicate you cannot not anchor right yeah okay. and this is this is true you cannot not influence same idea so the tableau rasa once they've you know, decided to call you up you've already got power Right. You know, and it's not that you want power, you you have it because they've decided that for some reason they need to talk to you. Yeah. Well, and now and you, you have to figure out what to do with that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. Now, it's also true, of course, that um, it's really good to be aware of the transference and countertransferences, things yeah. that happen in, in sessions. And that, you know, power thing is one of them. You know, he's the therapist, he's the he's the guy or she's the guy right? sort of thing. Um, so they're looking up to you in a certain way and you want to break that apart in some ways or not, depending on the situation, but being aware of it and also being aware of that, you know, the counter transfers, you know, how the therapist thinks about the patient. The you know, so those are really good things. I think are emphasized a lot in things like social work and traditional therapy that sometimes don't get, talked about as much in a NLP or other situations. No, I, I, you know, it's just a different, I, th I think NLP is wonderful stuff. I think it's, a, you know, it's helped me immeasurably just in life to view things in different ways. I think Bandler and Grinder were really good at collecting stuff. You know, they're kind of like Steve Jobs was good at stealing, <laughs> you know, other people's technology in a way. You know, like the the Mac was was something that was developed really by Xerox, but oh, he right. saw it and was like, "Wow, that's important." Yeah. Um, and yeah. not that he didn't have his own creativity and you know his own brilliance, but one of his talents was seeing something good. And Bandler and Grinder did that with you know whether it was identifying patterns from you know Pearl Satir and Erickson or lots of other ideas at the time. I think they were very smart. You know, totes, all that stuff. They were able to see the value in, right. and I think that um, you know having that good eye is important. There's good stuff in everything. You know, I'm really frustrated. The one thing that I was frustrated with Erickson, and that's kind of in the DNA of NLP, is trashing other schools, trashing psychology. It's, it's, NLP is a wonderful thing to add to almost anything. Mm. You know, I wish more clinicians were still involved in it. Because I think it is the nuts for a therapist to know these tools and this way of viewing the world. Um, but it, it's, 
you know, it informs everything I do, but it's not all that I do. That's a really great point, and I appreciate that. Um, I do have a question about that, and um, and, it, and it is this. In NLP, in hypnosis a lot, um, I, I see people twice, three times, you know, havening too. You know, people come in for a, a, a phobia or a, a trauma, you know, two, three times, done. Um, not always, but a lot. A lot of times mm-hmm. it's a very short-term solution-oriented therapy. Um, you see people for a long time. I mean, you you see people once a week for ages and ages and ages and years and years and lifetimes, really. Lifetimes over many lifetimes. I don't think that that's a really good representation of my practice. <laughs> but, but seriously, though, you, you do have a ongoing practice. People do have a regular I do. appointment. It depends on, okay, so I have, I have a variety. I, uh, if in case this goes on to YouTube, I'm currently in my basement <laughs> in a small town in Western New York because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic. Um, well, if you do, if you but, saw it uh, behind the screen here, you would you wouldn't be yeah. so bad. Yeah. I'm wishing <laughs> I had a screen, or, you know, a Star Wars sheet, something. Yeah. Um, so there's a so in the in a rural setting, so I'm in a, in a county with no cities in it, right? Mm-hmm. They, I have a very generalized practice, so I see people with lots and lots of different presenting problems. I also the county above me is Monroe, which is where Rochester is. I regularly have several psychologists up there that will be working with a client and they have some trauma, for instance, is a common one. They send them down to me. I see that client for a couple of sessions, do the trauma work with them, do that piece, and then they go back to their primary therapist. So right. some people right. I'll see once, three times. On the far end of the spectrum, I have some people that have some significant mental health issues that, that are not, in my opinion at least, something that can be handled in a few sessions. Mm-hmm. And I do see them ongoing for a long period of time, some years. Most of the people I see probably are in the six to ten session. Okay. So I will see them over a period of time. But I think that, you know, I don't think most practices would look that are dealing with mental health, right? I'm not a lot of the people that, that are demonstrating NLP are trainers. They don't have a practice. Mm -hmm. And the difference between doing a demonstration of a specific technique on somebody that is functioning well enough to be able to afford NLP training, Mm -hmm. is going to be different than some of the people I see in my practice. No, that's very true. Very true. In fact, I think you know, they're different populations. Your, your practice is actually some people who are referred to you sort of thing as a, as needing mental health. Um, oh, I'll, I'll virtually all of them. I mean, my, my primary referral source is doctors. Okay. Got it. So, I mean, most of my people are on medications and have lots of other pieces going. Now, some of them are their miraculous, NLP cures, you know, that go like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, somebody wants to Google me for uh, an article I wrote for the the um, psychological networker a while ago. There's a really neat article in there about a kid that I saw where we did some work on a on a voice that was bothering him. Mm-hmm. And although I had seen him. For more than one session, that piece is what what really did it for. So, yeah, it happened. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My um, my own training as an NLP trainer and also a hypnosis trainer, I, I have instituted in my trainings now actually a requirement that before people get certified, that they have to work outside of the class with you know at least five different people. It's a small hurdle to get over for somebody to get certified, but to, to work with five different people who are not in the certification training and they're not for co-students. They're, they're somebody who wants real help and don't even know what NLP stands for or what hypnosis really is, you know, sort of thing. Um, and it is amazing, truly, I think, how much a person learns when you start working with people like that. Oh, because yeah. they don't know 
you know what NLP is. They don't know what an outcome is. They they just they just are in pain and want to get out of pain, basically. You know, right. putting it in a nutshell. Um, so then it yeah. When, they, when you go, any part of you object to this? <laughs> Oddly enough, people on the street find that a weird question. <laughs> yeah. And how are you representing that belief to yourself in your mind? Right. It, so uh, tell me about the image. What image? Yeah. How do what you know that? I thought it. <laughs> it's a different you know, they don't they don't know the rules. Yeah, they don't know the rules. So it's yeah, it's really, really instructive to work with someone uh and people. So I I, I have had a private practice for you know thirty mm-hmm. years. Um and as and and do training. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Um and again, one of the reasons I wanted you on this broadcast is because you also have you know been in a lot of trainings, done trainings, I've met you in a training, met you in one mm-hmm. of my trainings, I think you came to yeah. one of the trainings. Um, and that you taught me basically the particular RTM procedures that, that you, I'm sure, had helped create with uh, Steve Andreas and others for the R and R. Yeah. When I helped out with the research. Well, and in that case, it was a set. It, you know, you're doing a study. You have to follow a protocol a lot follow, more yeah. closely. Right. We did build some flexibility into it, but that's a situation where it's totally opposite of what I said the essential skill was. Right. To do a scientific study really by the book, you do use a manual in effect and you say, okay, this is what I say to you. And you try to systemize it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, of course, it's, you have to do it that way. Otherwise, you're not getting good results about what happened in the study. It was one of the challenges, by the way, when I was working with Dr. Oz at the uh, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, because we were supposed to be there doing a study on did hypnosis work in a medical situation? But it was very hard to do, you know, a, a faux hypnosis, you know, for the placebo right. effect. You know, how do you do fake fake hypnosis where they think they're getting hypnosis, but they're not really? It's like it's yeah. it's by definition yeah. impossible to do. Yeah, well, we ended up doing because at one point we were going to have to do a design that had a control like that. That mm-hmm. um, we used a waitlist design, so we didn't have to do it. But a better, more rigorous study would have been to have three groups. And the control was going to be taught how to do uh, progressive relaxation. Okay. So that would be, a, it's still a bit of a treatment, but it's it's not, you know, I think it would not have been anywhere near as effective no, as the no. movie theater technique. No, not at all. I mean, I, I'm guessing it wouldn't have been on, on... I'm certain it wouldn't have been, honestly. Right. Oddly enough, it would have been effective with some people. Of course. Everything's effective. That's how it always goes. And, you know, just simply being in a a therapist's office and talking about your stuff, you know, occasionally is therapeutic for some people. Yep. Takes us back to that same idea that once the, you know, there's a great study uh, Michelle Wiener Davis did a million years ago. I don't know if you've ever run across her stuff. She did a book with Bill Mm O'Hanlon. Yeah, I know. And she has a whole business around divorce busting. Yep, yep. Oh. And uh, her study was they just started asking people when they came in after they booked an appointment at the first session, what's been better or different in the week since you've booked your appointment? Hmm. And people would identify things. Just having made that call made their life better. So you would start that. It was a solution-focused study. So you would start that finding the exception even earlier and it's a i i'm not as religious about it as i once was but for years i would always do that i'm just curious a lot of people report that things get better after they make the phone call what's been better since since we talked the other day well you know it's funny you mentioned that it's to shift their mind you know yeah i think that the other thing that gets lost in nlp sometimes is this is a nudger's game it's not a sledgehammer i'm sorry you're gonna have to um Expound on this metaphor that you came with, Mr. Metaphor. This is a nudger's game, not a sledgehammer? Yeah, you, you, you nudge your clients in the right direction. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's about being a nudge. It's not, sometimes you get to come in and go, hey, you had a trauma, I can fix this. And it's great. But most of the time you're kind of nudging them in the right direction. It's a lot like the, you know, Erickson's story of the horse. Hmm. You know, where, where he finds a horse as a kid. Yeah. And... And he didn't know what farm it was from, but by just kind of keeping it on the road, the horse knew where he was going eventually. It's very much like that. Cool. Yeah, it's a great story. 
Great story by Erickson. Um, yeah, very nice. Yeah, it's a midgers game, not a sledgehammer. Yeah. So many opportunities for bumper stickers from this, Bruce. It's, um, <laughs> it's I, I, I try to have a memorable statement. <laughs> You're doing very, very well. Um, you. you should also talk about um, getting a screen for the next time we do one of these calls or or yeah. else. Or at least a giant hat. <laughs> giant hat. That would be, could be really in, in a sombrero. <laughs> then I'll get busted for, uh, you know, cultural, uh, whatever that's called. Yes. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, <laughs> since, we're, since we've brought up humor, or one of okay. us has, I'm not sure. Um, do you use humor in your therapy sessions with uh I do. I do. And as, uh, even though it was a long, long time ago, I'm still milking the fact that I was a stand up comic in my first career. Um, yeah, I think humor is hugely important. Um, obviously, if you're not a funny person, that's okay. But if you have a knack for humor at all, I think it's a great way to make points. I think it's a great way to build rapport. And I think, um, you know, most humor is really one form of reframe or another. Mm, yeah. So yeah. there's also, uh, I read an interesting study years ago where they were, um, doing split vision testing. And so what they would do is they put a pair of glasses on somebody. One side would have vertical lines. The other would have horizontal. And then they'd say, okay, do you see horizontal? And they're seeing which eye is dominant, right? Mm -hmm. And in the middle of it, a guy came in and did something funny or told a joke. I can't remember what it was, but the person laughed after they put the glasses on, but before they got asked the question. And somebody said, do you see vertical or horizontal? And the person said both. Hmm. And it led to a whole different line of study, which showed that after you laugh, both hemispheres of your brain light up. Wow. It increases the communication. And when I heard that, I went, you know, like almost every therapist that's like a famous therapist uses humor. That's true. If you watch the videotapes, whether it's, you know, Albert Ellis or Erickson used really kind of weird puns and funny stories. Yeah. Erickson, or I mean, Bandler and Grinder heavily relied on humor. It's a very common thing. Even, you know, if you watch, uh, you know, a lot of those people from the 70s and 80s. Well, Frank Fairley humor famous going. for his humor. Frank Fairley, great example. Dobson used humor. Yeah. And I think it it helps to to light up the circuits. Yeah. Well, you know, if you can laugh at it, then you've got it rather than it having you. I think it's also dissociative, right? I think right. that to laugh at yourself, you have to dissociate. If you imagine slipping on the ice, that's a very different experience than imagining yourself slipping. Oh, yeah, very true. Yeah, beautiful. Well, gosh, Bruce, so delightful talking to you. It's really, uh, yeah. it's, That's fun. <laughs> did you say, eh? Like it wasn't no, so said, great yeah. for you? It's the damn internet. <laughs> no, no, I said, yeah, this is the best time I've ever had. <laughs> hey, I'm calibrating your physiology right now, Buster. <laughs> there you go. Now I believe you. <laughs> That's right. No, it's been great fun. Uh, really, it's, um, it's, you brought up a lot of really good things to think about. I love it. Hey, you Thank want you. my one tip for how you make money? What's that? Know your referral sources. What do you mean by that? Figure, figure out who are the people that are going to send you people. You know, word of mouth, all that stuff's great. I have lots of clients that come to see me because their friend saw me years ago or whatever. But my main source of referrals is medical doctors. So I, do things to encourage that relationship, you know, whether it's making sure I send them letters or whatever. But the point is, that's not what's going to work for a coach. They have to figure it out. So if they're an athletic coach, they better start glad handing athletic directors at universities or something. I don't know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But you have to be aware of where your referrals are coming from. If it's from your website, then you should be spending a lot of time making sure your website's working. Whatever it is, can be different, but you have to know what you're. Well, let me ask you a quick question about that then. So you said writing letters to physicians or to doctors. Mm -hmm. So, so anybody who, who comes to see me, whether it was their doctor specifically or not, they referred them to me. 
and this this normally you ha you're supposed to do this if you insure most of my folks use insurance right but a lot of therapists don't do this i don't know why i send that doctor within a couple of days the complete assessment that i did and i say thanks for the referral whether it was them or not but I make sure they get communication. If I'm having trouble with that client or for any reason, I've got to either call or do a letter to that doctor, I'm gonna do it. Because that's the relationship that feeds my practice. It's also good care, so it's easy, but. So you're not just talking about sending a thank you note or something like that, you're sending them the actual... In this case, no, but I would do that also if that's what was appropriate. Okay. But I keep the communication going. In that case, we're both cooperatively treating that patient. So it's appropriate for me to be talking with them on an ongoing basis of how to, how to do that. But if it's, but you, it's the relationship piece as far as the referral goes, it's important. So if you've got a certain class of people, I'm saying doctors, but it could be athletic coaches or it could be business people or whatever, even therapists, if you, you know, you do havening, you could build relationships with therapists that would do like I do, send you somebody for a few sessions, and then mm -hmm. you send them back. But yeah. it has, it's the relationship that makes it work. And do you have a, like a letter that you send out to people to say, hey, my name is Bruce. I do this kind of therapy if you have anybody. I have. I, I, I depends on the situation. Sometimes I'll do letters like that. Sometimes I'll call somebody up. Um, you know, any opportunity to to get the information out or to introduce myself. If a new doctor comes to town, I mean, I, I'm well established now, so I don't really have to do this stuff, but mm -hmm. I used to, you know, if I was aware that there was a new doctor to practice, I would try to set up an opportunity to meet with them and introduce myself. Cool. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that is important. And I apologize for not asking that question because, um, that is part of what this essential coaching skills podcast is about is how do we not only take our, our practice, you know, where we're helping people, how do we help people better, but also how do we right. you know, elevate our own practices to become you know, better at surviving. Yeah. No and point being skilled if you don't use them. Yeah, that's great. So once again, my you. pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.